ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. For the majority of people, it's the only chance in their lifetime, in their generation, that they will get a say on something that multiple generations have been arguing for, and that is the recognition of First Nations people in our constitution through a voice to parliament. I look forward to leading a government that makes Australians proud. This election didn't just change a government, it was a green slide. Safe Liberal seats, two-term incumbents, independence. We need to go back to our values, our principles, look closely at what has happened. Our policies will be squarely aimed at the forgotten Australians in the suburbs across regional Australia. Welcome to The Party Room. I'm Patricia Carvellis, the host of RM Breakfast and Q&A, joining you from Wurundjeri Country in Melbourne. And I'm Fran Kelly on the Gadigal land of Eora Nation in Sydney. And PK, we're now just over two weeks away from the referendum on The Voice to Parliament. We're going to be joined soon by John Paul Janke, a presenter at NITV and co-host of The Point, to take stock, I guess, of the campaign so far. But before we get to that, PK, after nine years in the top job, this is a big story this week. Dan Andrews dropped a political bombshell on Tuesday when he resigned as Premier of Victoria. Today I will again visit Government House and resign as Premier and member for Mulgrave. It's not an easy decision because as much as we've achieved together, there's so much more to do. But when it's time, it's time. When it's time, it's time. PK, an awful lot has been written and said about this moment. Uh, the caravan, of course, moved on quickly as it does. Dan Andrews has been replaced by his former deputy, Jacinta Allen. But the fact that it's you know stopped the nation, in a sense, this news says it all. It's an end of an era in Victoria, but Dan Andrews' influence went beyond the borders of your home state, didn't they? He, he exerted national power and influence, particularly during COVID, where we sometimes got the sense that he and Gladys Berejiklian were calling the shots at National Cabinet. His daily press conferences made him a household name across the country. It's a tale of two Dans, though, looking on, isn't it? He was loved by many for that strong leadership and those daily communications during COVID, but he was loathed by others for those long, long, long lockdowns. And, you know, his nine-year reign, of course, went beyond COVID. He claims the mantle of the most progressive Premier since Don Dunstan. You're a Victorian, PK. You went through all those lockdowns. You've lived through it all. Tell me about the cult of Dan. I keep reading about it. What explains it? Look, we have to give him credit for the skilled politician he is. He was an election-winning machine. Three elections. At the last election, where a very vicious campaign was run against him, particularly by the Murdoch Papers, he was able to, to actually increase his margin by seat. That is an incredible achievement by anyone's standard. Yeah, it's right? astonishing. He is a conviction politician. Whether you love him or hate him, you always knew where he stood. And I think we know from past politicians that, that politicians who are really clear about their values are often politicians that have great success. And in, in Victoria, he understood Victorians a lot. And while some dislike him, and I know many of them, I know people who can't stand him. Mm. I know others who think he's the best thing ever. I mean, they call him Uncle Dan. He, <laughs> he's seen as really somebody who will fight for progressive causes when others won't. And I'll give you an example. Transgender rights. 
he stood up on that very recently, like no other political leader. And on that issue, which is a really important social cause and progressive cause, Dan Andrews took it upon himself to really lean into an issue like that. That is yeah, an it's example. Yeah, it's a no-go zone for a lot of leaders, isn't it? That's really? right. They would avoid it. They would hedge. He doesn't. He doesn't hedge. He doesn't avoid it. And he owned the politics, right? Now, of course, this is a human rights issue. Please accept that I absolutely understand that. But in terms of the way he plays this politically, this is part of the cult of Dan, if you want to call it that. I don't think these people are cultish, by the way. They're just normal people. They love that about him, that he doesn't shirk or or get uh, uncomfortable around that pressure. That's part of what they love about him. And the things that are the greatest criticisms of him, that, for instance, we are, and we are, it's a fact, in the most debt in the country in Victoria compared to the other states and territories, are the things that the progressives say, well, okay, sure, but look at all this infrastructure. Look at the way he's built the state. So, yes, there's the tale of two Dan's. Many people uh, are angry, but it wasn't enough to shift the election. Now, that was mm. partly because, of course, the, the Liberal opposition was, uh, you know, I want to swear show, but it's not just about that. Mm. It's it's in this politician himself. So for this national podcast, I think it's fair to just reflect for a moment on the fact that I think he, and you're right, Gladys Berejiklian and then Dominic Perrottet after him, but Dan Andrews became the most powerful and towering political figure for Labor. I think, in the country until Anthony Albanese rose. He was a very powerful Premier. And just on that, in the political sphere federally, I mean, he, w- he was one of the last remaining pandemic Premiers, only Anastasia Palaszczuk in Queensland and Andrew Barr in the ACT remain. I noticed one comment piece this week suggested Anthony Albanese is now surrounded by a bunch of L-plate Premiers. Do you think that makes the Prime Minister's job harder or easier if he doesn't have premiers, more experienced leaders than him in the room standing up for their states and as sounding boards? What do you think? Column A, column B, uh, my favourite saying. (laughs) I think on balance probably easier though because he can more easily, you'd assume, be able to dictate the terms in National Cabinet more than he would be able to with someone, as I say, who is such a towering figure like Daniel Andrews. Now, like, they were aligned on lots of things, but there are going to be Biffo and Stouches, aren't there? I think it is ultimately probably easier for the Prime Minister Mm. than having lots of really, really powerful figures in the room. That's my analysis. Speaking of resignations, pressure's piling onto the Qantas chair, Richard Goida, to step down. Pilots Association joined the Australian Shareholders Association this week. That represents you know, retail shareholders or mum and dad investors, as they're so creepily dubbed sometimes, in demanding Richard Goida's resignation over a string of scandals that have hit the airline around the time and since Alan Joyce walked. The Qantas chairman and the new uh, chief executive, Vanessa Hudson, were summoned before a Senate committee in Parliament House this week, and it was quite the show. I'm not aware of any part of the Qantas workforce that actually wants you to stay. I met with major shareholders the week before last, uh, after Alan's uh, retirement and after the ACCC uh, information came out. And the feedback I got from our major shareholders was that they want the continuity of leadership of me as chair of the board. 
That's Chairman Richard Goida. He's not backing down. He reckons the shareholders want him to stay. But as I say, PK, it, it was quite the show, wasn't it, really, there, that Senate committee? It was a political exercise rather than trying to get to the bottom of the aviation industry. That's what it looked like to me. Look, it looked like both. I mean, I think there were some questions being asked um, which are about when decisions were made for the rejection of the Qatar flights and, and various other things which are about trying to figure out when and how. But, yeah, you're right, there was moments, particularly Bridget McKenzie, who, you know, is the chair and is the shadow minister responsible, who's really done the the big running on this. She accused Qantas of playing LA law, then kind of fronted the cameras. She slammed Qantas for their arrogance at the parliamentary hearing for not coming in prepared to answer questions. She said while the new Qantas chief, Vanessa Hudson, had apologised for Qantas's previous behaviour, there was still a level of arrogance about the airline. And I think that Vanessa Hudson was certainly in the in the hot seat. I think she kept her cool pretty well. But I do I think the points though that perhaps rather dramatically Bridget McKenzie was trying to make, she was also trying to get questions answered on the yes campaign and whether there was a quid pro quo with mm. the Prime Minister's office about them supporting the yes campaign. I thought Qantas answered some of those questions quite well actually, where they were like, well actually we've long supported the Uluru statement, we've long supported reconciliation and but that that's, it wasn't But that's the thing about the Senate committee committees, isn't it? Yes, Qantas had the answer to that. But the point for Bridget McKenzie was not only is she trying to get answers on the Qatar decision, which I think are really important to get, and the government still not really cleared that up. I don't think we got much clarity from Qantas either. But she's also trying to score political points here. And that was the big political point, wasn't it? Trying to prove that there's some kind of pally um, relationship between Alan Joyce and Anthony Albanese, which is why Qantas had their planes painted for yes. It was, it yeah. was a political show too. That absolutely was a political show uh, on on the other concurrent issue, which we're going to discuss um, with JP soon on the on the referendum. But look, we're recording this Thursday morning. Senior public servants are going to be hauled over, really the coals. I think it's fair to say, like really grilled um, about the decision to block Qatar Airways bid. The report finally doesn't even come out till the 9th of October. So watch this space because there will be more that emerges, and some of it may be difficult for the government because there is lots of pressure on them. And pick. Okay, at the beginning of the week, the government was getting on with the business of governing, introduced the much-touted employment white paper, which set out to redefine the definition of full employment and start a conversation about the changing nature of work. It was drowned out largely by big stories like the Dan Andrews stories and, and a whole lot of other things. But on the white paper itself... This attempt to redefine full employment to include underemployment and basically fulfil Labor's pledge of, you know, anyone who wants to work being able to get work, it, it was discounted by many as being sort of much ado about nothing, over-promising and under-delivering. What do you think? There are some ideas in there. 31 reform directions, faster take-up of apprentices, renewable energy. There's this extending of the work bonus measure for pensioners, allowing them to obtain more income without reducing their pension payments. Of course, you know, the coalition saying, hey, that was, you know, we were pushing for that. Okay. It's a good idea. Good idea. <laughs> like, Let's use it. But back to your point about not going as far as perhaps it should have. I mean, when you look at the full employment target, there is actually no target. There's no figure on it, right? They, they, it's, a, it's a pretty motherhood statement. 
maybe it's better to to not put a figure and to instead get the policies out there. And I think we're seeing the government have, you know, big ambition, as you say, but then take baby steps in the measures to get there. But, you know, the incentives for apprenticeships, for instance, and more money for TAFE, it's crucial because we don't have the workforce to support the, the, the big idea of rewiring the nation, you know, the transmission lines, or to build the orca submarines when the time comes. We don't have that workforce yet. So, you know, we've got to start getting those policies in place, things like the skills passport, a great idea, helping people move between jobs, keep training, build their skills. That's what we need. But these aren't being played out or run out yet by the government as part of this on the scale that's required. It's sort of they start with a big idea and then they take incremental steps towards them. It'll be interesting to see how much is advanced out of this because I feel like there's a, a strong sense at the moment and there's, you know, reports, for instance, out of The Guardian, that there's there's plan for a renewable acceleration, for instance, that there are bigger plans that the government's working on but holding off till after this referendum for a massive government reset. And I think that's actually what we're seeing a bit at the Mm. moment, Fran, and that there is quite a bit of work going on to try and really recast the government after that October 14th. Yeah, they need to, you know, come out, as you say, reset and reassure everybody that their government focused on cost of living pressures and building this economy. I mean, that's that's going to be the message, isn't it? That's it. Should we bring our guest in? Let's do it. John Paul Janke is a Wunthathi and Miriam man and the co-host of The Point on NITV and SBS. Welcome to the party room. Thank you for having me on. Great to be on. Oh, JP, it's terrific to have you on right now too because there's just over two weeks until referendum day. Pre-polling has already started in some remote communities. Pre-polling stations across the country officially open at the start of next week. At the National Press Club this week, Noel Pearson made this submission, JP, about how he's feeling as he awaits the verdict of this referendum. We would be untruthful if we didn't say we have a mixture of hope and terror about the answer to this referendum. No one wants their invitation of friendship and love to be unrequited. A mix of hope and terror, JP, is how Noel Pearson put it. Is that how, you know, you've been speaking to a lot of Indigenous Australians in the last month or two. Is that how Indigenous Australians are feeling right now? Is that how you're feeling? Yeah, it was a beautiful way, to, I think, to put the current situation and current debate we're finding ourselves in uh, across the country. You know, our, our communities and our leaders, I think, are fatigued uh, by the current debate. But really, where we're at is... We've been asking for significant change for for generations. And I think for a lot of people we're talking to, um, the referendum is a culmination of years of those consultations, those discussions that start in the riverbeds in central Australia and make it all the way to the halls of power in Canberra. Those discussions are a range of issues and grievances. And I think there is that apprehension that if this thing doesn't get up, it sets back those discussions with generations. A lot of people are saying that this is their once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to make substantive change, and if they don't get the opportunity to get this up this time, that they won't be around for the next time that they get to vote on significant change for the relationship between Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people and non-Indigenous people in this country. Yeah, we're going to get into a couple of the really significant speeches, JP, that were given 
over the last week, both Noel Pearson and Warren Mundine, really key people in both sides of the debate. But I just want to get to a point that was made by Warren Mundine before we get to his broader speech, but just a point just in relation to this idea of drawing a line in the sand in relation to, to grievance and victimhood. The idea that most Aboriginal people are just going to move on, whether it's a yes or a no, but if it's a no, is madness. It's not going to happen, is it? No, no, it's not. And again, it, it gets to that point that uh, this is generations in the making, you know, constitutional reform, people asking for substantive structural reform, a bit of self-determination, having a say in the policies that affect them has been happening for generations. People took to the streets in the 70s and 80s and 90s for this change. So to just let this moment go past in our nation's history and to then get on with the normal day-to-day business, I think, is, is not going to happen. Well, JP, the Prime Minister, Anthony Albanese, has done an interview with The Guardian this week and he says that even if Australians vote no to the voice to Parliament on the 14th of October and, you know, let's be clear, the polls are suggesting that's what is going to happen, the PM says the referendum will still be worthwhile as it is highlighted and brought to the centre First Nations disadvantage. Is he right, do you think, to make that case? Yeah, he is right. And I think, as Noel Pearson said at the press club, you know, this is probably the biggest opportunity our nation has had to hold the biggest mirror up to itself and ask itself, what type of nation do we want to be? So I think coming out of this really is the discussion of us as a nation of how do we see ourselves as a nation. For Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, they've seen the issues, the questions, misinformation, the racism. They've seen that over generations. So I think for a lot of non-Indigenous people, the whole process that they're seeing has been an eye-opener in the negative way that maybe some Australians see First Nations people and culture and, and how they fit into the wider Australian community. So will the pain have been worth the gain then? JP, if the outcome is no, I mean, as, as I say, you've been travelling around the country. Noel Pearson famously, once famously said, we are a much unloved people. Are Indigenous Australians going to feel more unloved after the referendum if the vote is no? I think the pain will be worth it because for the majority of people, it's the only chance in their lifetime, in their generation, that they will get a say on something that multiple generations have been arguing for, and that is the recognition of First Nations people in our constitution through a voice to parliament and having a say in the issues that affect him. I think one of the point parts of Noel's speech yesterday was he said, you know, my people are good people. They've done nothing wrong to deserve contempt and disdain and they should not be feared or despised. And that it's a really interesting phrase that Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people have done nothing wrong, but yet they are subject to fear and that fear is turning into being despised for seeking substantive change for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples. Now, the two significant speeches I alluded to, let's get into the tone and the arguments of those. Leading no campaigner and Budgelung man Warren Mundine was also at the National Press Club this week and as well as uh, deriding the voice proposal as radical and divisive language we've heard many times before, he went over the top, really, with his description of the Uluru Statement from the Heart, which first proposed the voice. Here he is. Both the 439 words on the canvas and the 26-page manifesto that sets out their agenda. What we describe as a symbolic declaration of war against modern Australia. 
The canvas is a glossy marketing brochure for the misappropriation of culture, a misrepresentation of history, and for a radical and divisive vision of Australia. So, JP, this was immediately denounced by, by many, including co-author of the Uluru Statement, Cobble Cobble Woman and constitutional lawyer Megan Davis. She labelled Warren Mundine's comment baseline Trumpian misinformation. And it is worth noting that actually, I think the Uluru Statement won the Sydney Peace Prize. Uh, <laughs> you know, the word war is quite ironic, really, isn't it, when they won the yeah. Peace Prize. But what was Warren Mundine suggesting with that statement? I mean, was he just trying to get a headline? What's, that, what's this about? Well, I think it's a, it's a call to action, I think, for the undecided voter. And if you've, if you've had a campaign that is uh, based on fear over fact, that is where that path is going to take you. Um, and rightly so. It's been called out by the, the uh, architects of the Uluru Statement because it actually is an insult to all those people who have been involved in the process prior to 2017 that have been involved in the process for seeking substantive change. Many of them have been elders and leaders in our community seeking substantive reform. So to call it a declaration or a symbolic declaration of war is an insult to the grassroots people, those people that have been involved in that uh, for many generations. It kind of also puts into doubt that if this is a document that seeks self-determination, it seeks the ability for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people to actually have a say in the policies that affect them. In some way, it's calling for equality of treatment. It's calling for recognition of their status of Indigenous peoples, you know, compensation for dispossession, the recognition of Indigenous sovereignty. If the Uluru Statement is calling for that, all the other previous petitions and treaties and documents and strikes and marches that Aboriginal people put forward, dating back generations, are also a symbolic declaration of war. And I'm talking about, you know, the Day of Mourning, the Yirrkala Bark petitions, the Freedom Rides, the Wave Hill Walk-Off, the Aboriginal Tent Embassy. If you say that the Uluru Statement, which is built on all those aspirations, if the Uluru Statement is a symbolic declaration of war, then you're also calling those movements or those protests, some for basic human rights, as also a symbolic declaration of war. But JP, Warren Mundine has been in this country a significant Indigenous leader over a long time. He, you know, obviously wouldn't say he's against self-determination, but he sees the voice as the polar opposite of what you just said. He, he called the voice a central overlord, suggesting it undermines power of traditional owners. This is one of his big arguments against it, isn't it? Yeah, look, for many people we've spoken to over the last couple of weeks, they uh, seem to be scratching their head that on one side you've got the no campaign saying that the voice is the most divisive thing that this country has ever faced and it should never get up. But on the other hand, you now have Warren Mundine say, well, if this gets up, I would like to sit on the board. And in fact, in recent days, we've seen Jacinta Price also say, look, if the voice gets up, I would love to be on the Joint Senate Committee or the Parliamentary Committee to actually establish the functions and the roles and the legislation based around that. So for a lot of people, it's now saying, well, you're saying this is very divisive and is a danger to Australia. But on the other hand, you're saying if it gets up, 
I actually want to be part of it. The tone of both those speeches was very different. As Warren Mundine talked of war, Noel Pearson spoke of love, and that's been consistent. I mean, he, I think early on in the campaign, before it began proper, he had some pretty fiery interviews on my show, actually, that have been talked about. But really, he's shown enormous discipline since that. And he's he's talked very positively, broadly, every time he talks, right? And the Yes campaign has spoken a lot about winning hearts and minds, door knocking and speaking to voters on the ground to convert them from soft no's to yeses. But let's be frank, JP, the polls show they're not having a lot of success if we had to trust them. Uh, In fact, right across the country, this is a really difficult proposition. Noel Pearson, who of course is flying around the country and putting everything into this, spoke about his conversion rate at the baggage carousel, which I thought was probably his funniest. What did he say? He has he's got he's got a better average than possibly Ricky Ponting. Ricky Ponting. Yeah, Ricky I like Ponting, that yeah. line. Yeah, but what's going on here? There's kind of a disconnect between the positivity, because they have run more of a positive campaign openly, that's been their approach, but getting it into the suburbs and the hearts and minds. Yeah, I think that's been a very big challenge for the Yes campaign is probably the lateness of their campaigning into that positive story and allowing maybe the negativity or the fear over fact to gain some substance across entire communities, mostly uh, the undecided voter, the multicultural community and also into Indigenous communities around Australia. So the challenge has been, I think, to claw back those numbers. And I think where we found ourselves now is the No campaign has to maintain that that kind of fear over fact and be very forthright in its message of, you know, this will challenge Australia, this will damage Australia, this is the dangers if this thing gets up, to where we are with the Yes campaign of saying, you know, this is our moment, this is our once in a generational moment to make some change. I think the Yes campaign is relying now on conversations in workplaces, on trains, on one-on-one conversations at shopping centres, of door knocking. But time's running out for that, isn't it, Jacob? Time is is running out. Time is running out. And I think that they're really trying to do that en masse to get people to, I think, overcome that fear and actually come back to a space where they're, they're going to decide their vote on fact. And I think that's important. They're saying, if you're going to vote, we want you to vote on fact, not fear. Mm. I just want to take you back to the the Prime Minister's comments we started off with. Do you think this is the start of the PM laying the groundwork for a loss and, you know, we're still two and a half weeks away from the vote almost, but is the government now turning its attention to the day after the referendum and, and what message will he have or would you like him to have for the nation if if it rejects his referendum proposal and this proposal from First Nations people? What do you think should be his first priority? Is it to the majority and move swiftly on to accepting the vote and and going to cost of living measures? Or is it to the minority whose requests for recognition have been rejected? What do you want him to be thinking about now? Well, I think as a a Prime Minister and a government, they would have obviously multiple scenarios coming out of this referendum in in October 15, because there there could be multiple scenarios. It could be um, an opportunity where the majority of Australians vote for a yes, but the double majority of the states, it falls down three to three. So, what does that say when you've got the majority of Australians supporting uh, constitutional recognition, but actually it's the states that, that let you down? So what does that look like moving forward? Do you move into a legislative body that can uh, replicate and amplify local and regional voices? So I think they would have that planning underway. Importantly, I think, look, for a Prime Minister, it's Australia's been dragged through a conversation and a debate which has turned very divisive and very ugly 
particularly for First Nations people. And we've seen a 100% rise in the reporting to support services for First Mm. Nations people, the online racism and trolling and hatred to First Nations people is off tap. It's, It's never been at these levels before. Now, whether after October 14 that goes back to normal or whether it stays, it's unknown. So I think there's got to be a moment where a prime minister and uh, political parties start to try and rebuild that relationship or that understanding of where First Nations people fit into the Australian nation and the modern Australian nation. It will undoubtedly, if it is a no result, be really difficult for a lot of Indigenous Australians. Yes will provide challenges too. There's a lot of work to do if it's a yes. But JP... Where, if it is a no, and, and and you say they're planning contingencies, absolutely, I know they are, the Prime Minister's words are going to have to be really well-crafted. He's going to have to think very carefully about the way he responds. But where do they go on the other elements of the Uluru Statement, right? Do they keep on the other elements, the Makarata uh, treaty-making? Is that what they lean into? Absolutely, and I think that will be a challenge. We had one of our speakers on the show, The Point, uh, on NITV, talk about that if this referendum doesn't get up, there's going to be no appetite for treaties and truth-telling. It it puts a doubt on that process as well. So I think there's a... Do you think it does, despite what Warren Mundine said, for instance? Do you think it it does kill that off? I think it does. And I think, uh, importantly, though, the treaties are being done in state jurisdictions, so they will move forward. But people will, will challenge that and say, look, the majority of Australians don't support the Uluru Statement. They don't support a voice. They don't support treaty and they don't support truth-telling. So I think the momentum towards that will be damaged. And I think, importantly, we've got to remind ourselves that that is what Indigenous people are saying. This is the way forward, regardless of whether Indigenous people support the voice or they support treaties and they want treaties first before the voice. They still are seeking, whether it's in our constitution or whether it's in our institutions, they are seeking substantive structural reform because, as Briggs, the musician, said the other day, he said... We're already living in no. No is today. If no comes back on October 14, October 15 is the status quo. We're living in no. Yeah, it was a powerful intervention. JP, uh, I'm a big fan of your work. Thank you so much for joining us. Very important time for the nation um, and it's really great to have these opportunities to have great conversation. Thanks, JP. We'll move to questions without notice. We'll give the call to the Leader of the Opposition. Thank you very much, Mr Speaker. My question is to the Prime Minister. The bells are ringing. That means it's time for our question time. And this week the question comes from Karen on Camaragal land in Willoughby. And Karen says, love the podcast. Thank you for your work. Well, thank you, Karen, for listening. This is the question. Good on you, Karen. Um, When and how will we know the result of the referendum? Will there be counting on the night of the vote that gets shared like our elections? Or will the result be announced on a specific date like the same-sex marriage plebiscite? Fran? There will be a count on the night, Karen. The AEC will start counting. Like elections, we're not sure how quickly. I mean, we haven't had a referendum for a long time. It's not clear how quickly a result will be evident. I guess that depends how strong the trend is. This referendum, any referendum, of course, needs the double majority. So we not only need to get the national count, but we need to make sure, you know, there's either a majority of states for yes, which may 
makes the change, or if three states said no, then the whole thing's defeated. So we don't know how long that will take. The AEC has reported strong postal vote coming in. Sometimes those don't get counted to the next day, so it depends if this is close, whether they will make the difference. But Anthony Green, rest assured, will be there. There'll be a big, like an election night broadcast. It will be on your TV and your radios, but it will be a different dynamic to the election because there's not so many seats, of course. So, yeah. I, again, I think it's going to just depend on on the trend, don't you, Peter? Yeah, but the likelihood is you will find out of the night. I think so. Gonna, yeah, and the other thing is it's what's different about the election is that there's no preferences, right? So it's a yes, no, it's a binary. Yeah. So it's easier to count and quicker to count. We could know the result very, very quickly. Oh, totally. Keep sending your questions in because we love getting them. We're especially, of course, as we say, fond of the voice notes. We just did a reading it out there, but we'd love your voice better than our own. You can email it to thepartyroom at abc.net.au. And you can follow us here at The Party Room on the ABC Listen app so you never miss an episode. And just quickly before we go, we wanted to tell you about another podcast we're loving at the moment. It's the second season of Take Me to Your Leader with Hamish MacDonald. Hamish takes you behind the personal and the political stories of world leaders, how they rose to power and what they intend to do with that power. You're going to learn a lot about Vladimir Zelensky, for instance, Ursula von der Leyen and even Joe Biden. So take a listen on the ABC Listen app. Take me to your leader with Hamish. That's it for The Party Room this week. We'll be back in your feeds next week. See you, PK. See you, Fran.